Greg, the great Jim Steinman has passed. Meatloaf, Bonnie Tyler, Celine Dion, the hit maker. I I thought, because who, I thought, you know, who names their kid Meatloaf? And who changes their name legally to Meatloaf? So who names their kid Meatloaf? So I thought. Did you grow up thinking that was his first name? That Meatloaf's real name was Jim Steinman. But Meatloaf, apparently Meatloaf is the guy's name or he, he, that's, I don't know. Like, like the edge. Why don't you give give me some notice that you want to talk about obscure names? Jim Steinman. Hello is not obscure. No, I'm not talking. I'm not talking. Never mind. Like Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I mean, like all of um, Bad Out of Hell is written by Jim Steinman, or at least all of the hits from Bad Out of Hell and Bad Out of Hell 2. By the way, Meatloaf is Michael Lee Ade. What's wrong with the name? His mother did not name him Meatloaf. I know, but you know, when you're a kid, like... When we, did, got, we got a live studio. We got a live studio audience today, by the way. Well, tell the studio audience how old was I? How she old just was dropped I? F bomb our live studio audience. <laughs> you tell you know she'll be just. Uh, we'll have to remove her from the audience if she continues to chirp. She continues to be <laughs> belligerent. Yeah, I don't. I don't have to take that. I don't, Perfect. I don't come to her classroom. And start dropping that box. <laughs> you, you tell her. Uh, he says that he doesn't come to your classroom and start dropping F-bombs. Well, actually, it's funny because <laughs> if you think about it, I got the talking to a while ago during remote learning that apparently I dropped too many F-bombs and talked too loud. So I had to make sure my office door was closed while kindergarten music class was going on downstairs in the Dining room. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, yes. It was a it was a stern talking to. It was. Let me st- tell you. <laughs> Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at eleven seventy seven Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hey, so I'm Tom Bojor, uh, one of the co-authors of Nothing But a Good Time. Uh, I have was a music journalist for many years, worked at Guitar World magazine, founded the metal magazine Revolver and did that for 10 years, and then founded Guitar Aficionado magazine, which was like a, a luxury guitar magazine, and then uh, also produce and record bands like uh, Not a Surf, Guided by Voices, Juliana Hatfield, um, things like that. And uh, that sort of brings us up to the present. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Rich Beanstock, I'm the other author of Nothing But a Good Time. I am also a Guitar World alumnus, which is where Tom and I first met uh, 25 years ago at this point, Um, you know, Throughout my time there, I was editor, managing editor of different magazines, a writer. I still do write for them. Uh, I freelance for a lot of other publications, Rolling Stone and Billboard and The Times and and so on and so forth. I've authored or co-authored a few other books. Um, I recently did a book called The Decade That Rocked with the photographer Mark Weiss, which was a photo coffee table book of of all the same types of bands that are in this book. I co-authored the Kurt Cobain book that went along with the the montage of Heck documentary from a few years ago. I also play guitar. I've played in a bunch of different bands. I've played with some of the guys in our book, uh, like nice. Poison and LA Guns, and I've opened for Twisted Sister and and that type of stuff. So I uh, get to live out that fantasy a little bit as well. Uh, you guys say the, 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 the podcast name. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the music. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And you're listening to Welcome to the Music. (laughs) 
Perfect. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, it's so great to have you guys on here with us. Um, I want to I want to start off by like it was a, a great read and so many so many interesting like stories and 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 you know pieces of interviews that were strung together around themes of the chapters and discussion points and stuff. And so really, what we want to start off with is like how did this come together? Because it's yeah, how did this come together? It was something that Rich and I had been talking about for probably a decade. You know, well, the main thing is that we've known each other seriously since like 1996, 97. And our favorite topic of conversation, if there was nothing actually, you know, important about the magazine, and maybe even if there was uh, to discuss was we would always end up talking about hair metal. Uh, we would talk about this, that, like speculating about you know, really weird minutia and stuff. And, and, and um, we sort of bounced around the idea of doing this book. And, and suddenly about four years ago, um, not even suddenly, but we, it just seemed like it was really time. Uh, we both felt that we could sort of commit the, the energy to it. I don't know if, if Rich felt this way. I kind of felt this way that if somebody else had done this book, like if we had been halfway through it or trying to get a book deal and found out that somebody else was working on it, I would have really felt like I, I, I kind of missed the opportunity of a lifetime to do it. Cause it's really the music that's like sort of for better or for worse, like at the core of my being. So for all of those reasons, um, about four years ago, we started in earnest putting together a, a, a book proposal. Um, and it also seems obviously that we weren't the only ones like it seemed to it, it's, it's, it's you know at the same time somebody was thinking about putting out this cobra kai tv show you know with like you know based almost like where the whole soundtrack is kind of based on this music and it sort of seemed the scene it probably there were people simultaneously feeling that the time to examine this decade what was now and so, so and so we we got to work and uh regretted it many times while doing the book but did in fact finish awesome that is awesome i i wanted to i wanted to ask you about guns and roses because they're they're a big part uh of of the book um were they automatically included in the book because of the time frame and was it a time frame you were looking at, or were you looking at specifically hair metal bands? Because they, think, they seem odd, they, they don't seem to fit. Yeah. Well, they're always sort of the wild card. Like anytime you even see someone puts together like list of the greatest 20 greatest, you know, hard rock or hair metal records, it's like, well, you know, they're always the one that people debate whether they should be on it. It wasn't really a debate when it came to this book because you know, I think that there's so much a part of this scene, even if they, whether you want to say they transcended it or whatever, which I even think is sort of a negative way to put it, you know, in terms of other bands like that you're now saying didn't transcend it or that there was something you wanted to transcend. But the point, like, yeah, Guns N' Roses became a much larger entity outside of the scene. But if you read the book, you know, you see that they are very much, spawned out of this world and not and more than that they're very much like a part of it meaning like they are they are really tight with a lot of these bands there's a lot of interchangeability with some of the bands and like mm. axel is in la guns and tracy guns obviously starts guns and roses with him um you know they're playing is he's playing in the band london and like and there's just all this sort of stuff going on they're they're really friendly with the faster pussycat guys and they're hanging out at the same places so you know, they're sharing a manager with Great White. Like there's, it would be, whether or not you even think that they're sonically, stylistically the same as these other bands. Mm -hmm. If you were telling the story of the Sunset Strip and hard rock on the Sunset Strip in the mid eighties to not talk about them, you know, would leave a gaping hole because they are right in the center of it. And they're right there playing shows with Poison and and all these other bands. So I don't think it was something that ever came up. Like we knew right from the beginning that they would be a pretty central part of that that part of the story. 
And and as we do discover in the book, you know, Slash did audition for Poison. Uh-huh. That's he, crazy. You know, and he did, <laughs> you know, and he, and he probably would have taken the gig had he gotten it. No. And he replaced, uh, you know, uh, Paul Gilbert from Mr. Big uh, and, you know, in a band called Black Sheep. So, you know, there, there really was, they were crossing the street all the time, these guys. Yeah, they just seemed to be like the bad boys of, of rock. Mm-hmm. At, at, at that at that time you you know you talked about uh having similar managers as, as other bands um I, th- I think alan niven in your book talks about like nobody wanted these guys guns guns and roses um what what was it about the lifestyle at that time where it was to be in a to be in whether it was poison or guns and roses or another one of these bands it wasn't enough to make music. It was a total, it was like a total lifestyle, like debauch, debauchery, you know, from sunrise to sunset and in between. <laughs> I think one of the things is that you look at these bands and maybe it's different from how bands are today, um, different from when I was in bands as well. Like these guys didn't have day jobs. Like this was full on. And yeah, a couple of them maybe did some telemarketing or this and that, but like this was full on like, the life. And if you were going to do it, especially if you're going to do it in LA where there's such competition and there's just so many bands out there and there's so many people craving this stuff, like you were doing it 24 seven or else you were just going to get left behind very quickly. So if you're not, you know, if you're not rehearsing or playing a gig, you're promoting and you're putting up flyers or you're doing, you know, you're finding your manager, you're, you're making your record, like you're, you're doing it all day and all night. And so part of that is like, there's never a a part of your life that is separated from that lifestyle. Um, And clearly like the sex, drugs, rock and roll thing, like that's, that's the reason a lot of these guys got into it to begin with. It's not the whole reason, but that's going to be part of the, of the life. And so it's not like, well, now I have to go to my job as a graphic designer and I'll be (laughs) back at eight o'clock tonight you know, so like you're never outside of it. So it's not, it's not something you're indulging in. Like it's literally just, it's, it's who you are. Like it's just around you all the time. No, I would say there's also something about sort of like, you know, the, the size of, you know, LA is a massive city, but the strip and Hollywood is actually topographically like very small. So like, you've got a lot of people in a small area and when, when they're promoting themselves, you know, I mean, they would go beyond with the poster and, and play in the Valley and stuff, but it's really a small, very tight knit community of very uh, desperate and poor young people. You know what I mean? So they're like that. They're, that's what they do. They party They're You know, who knows if their frontal lobes are fully developed. And something that we've discussed is, you know, there's to come back to poison again, there's this, you know, a story in the book where Matt Smith the original guitar player from Poison uh, who came out from Pennsylvania with him goes home nominally because his girlfriend is pregnant, but you know, Ricky rocket, the drummer from Poison also says that like, it's almost like not to his credit, but like he was sort of a normal person and he just couldn't hang. Like, you know, he could, he, they were poison were living in a warehouse that had flying cockroaches with, you know, with sheets dividing their spaces and gangs outside trying to kill them and no money. And, you know, for the other guys in the band, they're like, yeah, we're going to make it. This is an adventure. And he, you know, for like for many people and Richard and I have discussed, we would probably would have been those people. You would get to LA if that was really what it took. You'd be like, you know, fuck this. I'm out of here. Like if a well-adjusted person might not have been able (laughs) to, to, to hang in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a great segue. That's a great segue to what I was going to ask, which is, you know, there's reality and there's legend, right. Or myths or whatever. So how did you manage that when you were pulling together the book or did you just let it come together regardless of reality versus legend? (laughs) Does it, does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah. I think that, you know, I mean, reality, like whatever, one person's perception of reality is sort of becomes reality in a weird way. And if people have different, one of the great things about an oral history is like, you're getting all these different people to talk, right? So if you're getting two people to talk about the same situation, they have totally different viewpoints on what happened. 
so be it. It's not even, you just run them both and you kind of leave it up to the reader to decide like what's, what's the kernel of truth in this. Um, and sometimes that, sometimes that happened, but honestly, not that much. Like people were pretty, you know, you felt the reality feels like it's, it's real because people were pretty accurate and on the same page with what they were saying. Yeah. Surprisingly. So given what we were just talking about, the way these guys lived and the partying and the drugs yeah. and alcohol and all that, like they pretty much remember what happened and they remember how it happened. And that was like a nice sort of thing to, to see because you didn't know if that was going to be the case. Um, so you could kind of let these guys just run. And the great thing was like, you didn't have to go looking for certain types of stories or digging for dirt. You know, that there is some of that in the book. It's not overloaded with that, but the, the reality, even just the day-to-day existence of how they were living and how they were trying to make it and the creative process and all that is, is wild enough on its own that mm-hmm. it can sustain a book, you know, and be very entertaining, like just just the story of how these guys, you know, ascended to where they were. And and, and I think that that's what made this music sort of special, at, at least to people like Rich and me. And also, then in the end, uh, when sort of the uh, when the pendulum swung a little more towards maybe like authenticity or however whatever you want to call it. Like the problem is that. When you talk about legends, you know, we're, we're talking to the people who did this stuff. So they're guys and bands, but they did create for people like me and Rich and like millions of other people, mm. a fantasy and a legend, you know, <laughs> and, and yeah. which is what I keyed into at 15. Like, you know, when all I think about is poison, by the way, if you knew me for like <laughs> a month, you would realize it. But like, like for me, the big video was, Poison's talk to me video. And when CC, when they, there's this opening shot where like CC DeVille is sitting there and there's a semi with a complete row. There's like 30 guitars, you know, behind him. And, you know, the band was broke when they made that. I don't know how many of those guitars are actually his. It doesn't matter. And I, you know, and he's referencing Rick Nielsen and all this stuff. But when I saw that video, I'm like, this guy is a superhero. So they were very normal guys, but very driven, but creating something that through MTV and the sound and the production and stuff was, if not legendary, then monolithic and like aspirational, you know? And so I, what we kind of want to do with this is, is, you know, show the people behind it because you may not end up reading our book and then liking LA Guns or Warrant, but you will end up realizing that the people behind the marketing facade were like dudes and bands mm-hmm. trying really hard to, 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 to make it happen. Yeah. I'm curious, was there something, cause Tom, you talk about this, the strip is a really small space. Um, I don't know what, what's been, what's happening in LA at that time or on the strip at that time that, you have all of these monster rock bands coming out of that that strip. I'm kicking that to Rich because he's the, he's the LA he's the full LA yeah. obsessive. Um, who the hell knows, really? <laughs> all right, no, but like, but I think what it is, and Tom's Tom actually kind of said this is like, you know, LA is a sprawling place, but you have this very concentrated area, which is the strip, but you know, the, the sort of other meaning of it being that sprawling place is that in a lot of ways, it's, it's a suburban city. Um, and this music is kind of suburban music. Like this is not even to this day, um, you know, where these guys, a lot of these bands are back out there and doing really well on tour, playing big places. Like, you know, Tom, Tom and I are both New York and New York City type people. Um, these bands don't come through the city. You know, you go to Jersey to see them. You go to Long Island to see them. It's not Manhattan and Brooklyn is not where you're going to go see Poison and and Cinderella. You know, it just doesn't happen even to even today. Um, so the thing the thing that was great about L.A. is you had the concentration of an urban area and you had the sprawl and just the sort of mentality of a suburban area. And I think that that was a big part of it for this music. And then you combine that with the fact that like LA, I mean, the 60s and 70s, it's always been 
an epicenter of, of sort of the new thing that was going on. And this was the new thing at that time. Um, but I think that that was really a big part of it. And you get a lot of the guys who are on the East Coast saying that as well, like the, the Skid Row guys in Jersey or, you know, the Cinderella guys in Pennsylvania and Philly. They're like, you had these areas where the bands played, but you didn't have anything that was like the Sunset Strip. It's like you go play your show and then you hop in your car and maybe you go to like, you know, White Castle or Denny's or wherever the party is. But you have to go there. You know, you're not walking over to the Rainbow that's two two doors yeah. down and then hanging out there for a couple hours and then going to the Roxy or whatever. So they didn't have that sort of built-in community the way that they did in LA. And also remember back then, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't do your band camp page, you know, you, no. you, the labels are in New York and LA period. And LA is a much more like Rich is saying, there were actual radio stations that played this music in LA. And you, I mean, I grew up in New York. There was SOU, which was Seton Hall University in uh, New Jersey that played this music, but there was no major commercial radio station in New York City that played, you know, this kind of hard rock. The other thing is, and the, the drummer from Warrant, you know, says this is like he, when he gets to LA, I mean, he's terrified because there's so many bands, but it's the first time in his life he really feels at home. You know, he's like, I am with all the other freaks who want like with the long hair and the earring from, you know, and that kid from every high school in America who wanted to be a musician moved to L.A. You know, and you, you also forget, like, this is still a time and, you know, happens with Skid Row in the book. It happens with with uh, Motley Crue. Where when, once they get out of the metropolis is before they're famous, like and they're in a you know Denny's or a White Castle with long hair, like you would still get your ass kicked for that in 1984. Yeah, you know? mm -hmm. so it was a place that you all these people congregated to be with like-minded people and record companies. So yeah. it's a yeah. I mean, like Atlantic Atlantic Records was like right down the street on the yeah. strip so yeah it's much easier to get a guy from a label to come see you if he has to walk over for five minutes as opposed to if he's in manhattan and then has to go out to like you know somewhere on the island or something like he's just not going to do it yeah um you mentioned you mentioned motley crew there and one thing i wanted to ask in the intro i thought it was interesting you talked about new wave taking um was it new new wave taking the fashion from punk I think there's some, something along that line. So the look in the fashion, the big hair, which would have been me back in that day um, from that side of things. But I mean, one of my favorite albums of all time, hands down, uh, is uh, Too Fast for Love. And I feel from, I don't know if it's an influence, I feel it's one of the greatest punk albums ever made. I don't know what you guys think. Maybe I just said something sacrilegious, but I just like... I got goosebumps because to me, that's just one of the best punk albums I've ever heard. I know I like speed punk albums. You know what I mean? I mean, I agree. And like Nikki Six says it, you know, he says it. He's like, the punkers loved us. He's like, the punkers were like, yeah. Nikki Six is a character in, in our book who's, he knows what he's doing. You know what I mean? Like he's probably heard He's heard the Pistols. He's heard probably Sham 69. He's heard the Dolls, definitely. He's definitely heard Cheap Trick. You know, he, yeah. he, he, and he, he's manipulating the, I think the sound, not manipulating makes it sound, but like he's got his feet on the gas and the clutch, like with the look and the sound and the this and the that. And even with the aesthetic of knowing that when he hires Vince Neil, Vince Neil's not like the best operatic singer. And Mick Mars isn't, you know, um, like some shredding guitar player, but you know what, like if you play, if you want to play live wire, like correctly and not slow down, like that guy has a right hand that won't stop. So he knew he wasn't about like shredding. He, so he, I think all of those elements that, that make you think like it's a great punk rock record, which it is like sonically, um, he was dialing that in, you know what I mean? Like he, he yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was recorded for no money really fast, you know, which, which is another. Um, but yeah. the production is phenomenal. I mean, it's just, it's like I said, it's like a perfect punk album. It's just so well done. Anyway. Yeah. There were a lot of surprises uh, 
for me in this book reading it, like one of them, maybe, you know, everybody knew this, but Gene Simmons of Kiss uh, <laughs> wanted to manage Van Halen um, as, as, as they were coming up. Um, were there any, and you guys have been writing about music, you guys have been in the space for so long. Were there any surprises for you as you're putting this book together? There were a lot of surprises. Um, you know, nothing necessarily comes to mind. I mean, a lot of things would come to mind, but I will say one of the things I would say is that there were a lot of times where like Tom or I, after doing an interview, it was like you hang up the phone from the interview. It's like, thank you for your time. Click, you immediately call up the other person and you're like, you'll never guess what I just found out, you know? And it'd be like, and it could be something crazy or it could be like the most ridiculous little piece of minutia, you know, that, that is not really all that interesting to anyone that's not an obsessive. Um, but when you've been listening to this stuff for 40 years to find out this little thing about it that you'd never knew before is like, you know, sort of like mind blowing. Um, the Gene Simmons thing, one of the things that was interesting is like, yeah, that he's, he's there with Van Halen and trying to sign them. And I mean, Gene has talked about this a lot and like, probably giving himself a little more credit than is due, you know, as Gene does. But the, th the interesting thing about the book, and I don't know that I noticed it in, until we were sort of done, is that Gene keeps popping up throughout the book. He does that with a lot of bands. He does it, um, you know, he does it with Keel, and he actually does work with them. He does it with Tom. I can't even remember now. Cinderella. He it was pops Cinderella. Um, I think he pops up with Warrant at some point. Like He, he might... Yeah, he keeps popping up and wanting to like work with people, um, and like offers them <laughs> shitty deals. Shitty deals, yeah. <laughs> and like, and you would think that like, I mean, people would take that deal because it's like he's still Gene Simmons. Granted, this is the mid '80s and Kiss aren't what they once were, but the bands actually, for the most part, don't. I mean, there's a scene where Gene is at the. Um, the launch party for the decline of Western civilization part two movie. And he sees Stevie Rochelle, the singer from tough up on the screen and tough is not a signed band yet. They're just still a local band. And he sees that guy and he's like, once again, he's being Gene Simmons. He's like, I want to work with that guy. And he approaches him or approaches him through a third party at the after party for the premiere of the movie. And again, like Stevie Rochelle doesn't have much going on but he kind of knows he doesn't necessarily want to be working with Gene Simmons because Gene Simmons at that point is like 15 years kind of out of his prime. I mean, his prime comes around again, but in the late eighties, he's not really there. And Stevie Rochelle is like, you know, Gene Simmons, it didn't really mean anything to me in 1988. He's like, if you had told me CC DeVille wanted to work with me, he's like, no question about it. I would have been there. Um, but, you know, so Gene keeps popping up and he keeps kind of getting pushed away by all these other bands. It's funny, it's funny you say that because I think I know three bands in Toronto and I was at various events and concerts and stuff where Gene was there because he wanted to work with them. So it's funny you say how many mm -hmm. other bands. It's just like, he seems to be everywhere wanting to work with everybody. Yeah. yeah. Um, were there any stories that surprised you or a story that surprised you? I mean, there was... There were quite a few. I mean, the weirdest one for me is like uh, that I really never heard at all. And which is corroborated by everyone is like sort of, the, you know, the, uh, the photographer Ross Halfin's like, let me tell you how Cinderella threw away their career. <laughs> like do tell. And he's like, he's Ross. I wish like, you know, he's like this British guy. Have you ever watched um, the Def Leppard behind the music? If you have, there's a photographer, that's Ross. And he's like, it was Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's like, that's sort of how he talks, you know. Um, he's like, let me tell you how Cinderella pissed away their career. And so evidently, um, they, they were about to do this massive European tour um, in, in 1991. And they're in England and the Gulf War starts. Mm. And there, and Tom Kiefer and some of the road crew are just like, you know, we can't go to Europe. They're going to bomb Europe. Blah, 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 blah. And and literally the entire Cinderella camp after the second show charters a plane and goes straight from the venue 
to the plane and like flies home. And that's basically when everything starts falling apart for them. But like, just, and it's weird because, so they screwed, I don't know how many European promoters in the process. And, and even their, and their, and their managers like, you know, this is, this is where it went south. And apparently they had, they had, the reason they were so tense is they were supposed to be on the flight out of Lockerbie, but there's weird things like that because like Tom Kiefer's like that talking about it. And he, he even admits it. And like these little weird things where like a band takes like this, you know, there's two forks in the road right there. You know, do I go left or right? And they go left and, and in a weird way, their career never recovers. And certainly when the nineties start, they haven't built the foothold in Europe where they can go play there, you know, and, and sort of forget about America. So there are lots of weird, you know, very strange stories like that. I found that one for some reason to be absolutely fascinating. <laughs> that and that Nelson did their whole video backwards, you know, like that, that, that the, uh, that the directors were like, look, here's what's going to happen. We want the snow going up, you know, then this, that, the other thing. And the way we're going to do that, is you have to learn to play the whole song backwards. And if you watch that video, that's what they did. They actually learned to play the chords backwards and mouth the, the words backwards, like find on blah, 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 blah. And um, the drummer, Bobby Rock, has to like learn how to play drums where he's hitting up from the skins and stuff. And like, it was this incredibly arduous three-day shoot you know to do this thing and like when you realize like that you know that's how much money and sort of hubris and just like bizarre you know like you know that was a perfectly normal idea like oh yeah let's do it all backwards let's spend a quarter million dollars and it looks cool does it look <laughs> you know but so that was another one where it's like this is the most amazing thing i've ever read um how important was mtv for uh, this genre of music at this time? Like does one, does, does Guns N' Roses, Poison, Cinderella, like do they all pop without MTV? You know, I think that they, they might, but they don't, certainly not in the same way. I mean, as, how, as far as how important MTV was, it was like, it was everything in a way. Same way it was for, you know, a lot of the band, like the, all the new romantic bands and all this mm -hmm. stuff. But for the, for these guys, it was just perfect timing. You know, I mean, the, the video that really breaks the door down and this, the, there's a big section in the book about this is quiet riot, come on, feel the noise. Mm -hmm. And you look at that video, there's nothing spectacular going on. It's just these dudes on a soundstage um, playing their song, you know, but that, does it and one of the things that we've talked about and the bands talk about is like they were just camera ready because you had these guys they were all like super diy bands hadn't been able to get signed most of them you know they were doing things all on their own they were creating their own stage show their own look yada 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 especially in la where they're fighting against a hundred other thousands of other bands for eyeballs they're just doing this thing where they're trying to do the most over the top thing they can, whether it's in their look, their stage show, they're playing these clubs like the Starwood as if they're playing Madison Square Garden. So they've been doing this every night. And for a band like Quiet Riot, they've been doing it for literally 10 years by 1983. So when something like MTV comes along, it's like, you know, just put a camera on them and, and press record and like, just let them do what they do. And like, you can't take your eyes off it really. And that was enough um, to open up that door for all these other bands to walk through. And then of course, do much more high concept stuff. Like the next band that really comes through is Twisted Sister. And they take it over the top with these like storyboarded videos, but they all acknowledge that it was Quiet Riot. That was really the band that maybe without them and without that video, you know, maybe the whole thing happens, but it certainly happens in a much different way. Mm. And go ahead, Tom. No, and, and, and in the process, and, and, you know, and it's probably why we're talking about it now, too. Like, it, they, these guys become famous. You know, this is not like something that really happened. I mean, it happens in the pop world, but, you know, the guys in, in Nelson could not go. They're like, if there was one of us, I could, we could go to the mall. If the two of us were, went to the mall together, there was going to be a riot, you know? Hmm. Um, 
Dee Snyder is famous, famous. You know, like these are people who he become still full is. on. Yeah, they become full on celebrities just by virtue of the fact that these these videos are just on all the time and their faces are on TV all the time. For better or for worse, it's also what allows them not to reinvent themselves later. Mm. But, you know, there was a level, I, it was a word, I'm stealing this word from Rich because he used it once in an, in, in an interview <laughs> and I thought it was really good. There was like this monoculture, you know? And so like, if you're watching MTV, you're seeing these bands. Like, you you know, there's Dial MTV, they're dominating that, there's Headbangers as well. So you couldn't, escape this this was the dominant form of rock music at the time you know um so it was i think mtv was absolutely you know completely pivotal in it greg and i have talked to to a bunch of guests and we all talk about spotify and um how you know do you do you look at the algorithm and do you figure out everything from you know, when the singer comes in to how long the song is going to be and, and all of these different things. And as I'm going through your book, it reminded me of that because there's something about MTV, these bands and the onset of the power ballad. It seems that that, you know, having a power ballad song is, is sort of the, the key to tricking the algorithm to make a band or a song successful. Um, how important was that for bands to to like break on through to um, top forty or or more rotations on on MTV? It was super important, and that's actually a really good correlation with what goes on with Spotify today. And I mean, you know, obviously nowadays, like everything is sort of more data driven, but so yeah. like maybe you know to do exactly like a ten second intro, and then your chorus has to come in by second by 27 seconds or whatever it may be back then it was, uh, you're going a little bit more on, on vibe, but yeah, at some point people realize like if you make a power ballad, you can, I, I think Tom knows this quote better cause he's used it in, in some of our interviews, but it's a great quote in the book um, where who is someone C says it, CC DeVille says it to someone. Yeah. He goes, he goes, he says it to, is it to one of the guys in warrant? I Maybe. think it is. And he go, do you want me to do the quote? And then I'll, I'll yeah, because Tom, Tom also here. does the voice, so like that that helps. He's like, <laughs> he's like, your first single gets you a car, the power ballad gets you a house, and that's and it's the truth. Back to yeah. you, Rich. <laughs> yeah, and so that's really what it was. It's like, well, you can either sell, you know, you can go gold and be the opening act on a major arena tour, or you can release a power ballad and go triple platinum and like be the headliner. And I think a lot of bands really took that to heart, you know? And so you have the power ballad is this weird thing because it is, yeah, it's formulaic and yeah, it's sort of, I mean, you can say it's sort of a crass, you know, sort of angle that a lot of these guys do, but it's also just like, any of the bands these guys grew up listening to, like they grew up on seventies rock, right? So they're listening to Aerosmith and Skinner and all that stuff. And like those bands, they had their slow songs along with the fast songs. So I think that it started from a more natural place where it's like every rock record, classic rock record you listened to growing up had a couple slower songs on it. So I think that's what these guys were doing too. But then like everything else, it becomes this very specific thing where it's like, well, the big, the big distorted guitars coming in the chorus and like everything sort of lifts and like they all start to sound the same a little bit, but I do genuinely believe that there was something more pure about some of these ballads than people really mm. give them credit for. Um, and there were some of them that had nothing pure about them, but, but the answer I think is somewhere in the middle. The truth is. And I mean, that was, but it was really, I mean, also you have to remember, how much money, like, it's easy in a world now where like rock music, it just, these metrics don't exist, but you know, the, first of all, the labels are spending a ton of money on these bands between the tour support and the radio and this stuff. But if you can make a record sell 4 million copies, like that's your quarter, you know? Um, yeah. And it was specifically that you would, and the, the, the algorithm was you do two rock singles, 
to establish credibility and not completely alienate the male fans. And then the third single, if the record has legs, um, is the ballad. And that, if you're lucky, crosses over to AM radio and pop radio. And that's where you get the sort of civilians, the housewives, the girls, everything. And it sort of becomes this massive thing that said yeah you know i mean there are like faster pussycats house of pain even like uh, la guns ballad of jane there's some really great ballads which i think were just gen- like legitimately um good songs but it was it was an import a integral part of the marketing of these bands and um something that was held against them later yeah it, it's funny <laughs> because i i uh I, I came out of sort of the funk side of new wave and into when the, the convergence with metal, whether it's like living color or faith no more, or I don't know if you know boot sauce up here in Canada or not, but um, you know, even to the band extreme. And there's been a time when we were on a conversation, we were talking about the convergence of, of funk and metal. And I brought up extreme and cream. All he could think of was more than words. And he had <laughs> no, no, no concept of how I could ever bring up extreme in a conversation. But anyway, um, where I also wanted to go was we talked about, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, just one other thing. And I think this is a really telling one to just add to what Rich was saying, you know, Vito Brada talks about when the children cry, which was huge. And he's like, seriously, like, he's just like, dude, I was trying to write Dust in the Wind. He's like, I didn't know, I wasn't trying to write a hit single. We had never had a hit single. I didn't, you know, that wasn't even like fucking in my mind. I just really liked Dust in the Wind. And the, and when you, when you reverse engineer, like, oh yeah. You know, so these guys had just grown up on bands that did this stuff too. So, so at the, so, so we're into much music or much music, much music up here, MTV down in the U S you know, things are huge. And, and you cover this sort of towards the end of the book by bringing in Jerry Cantrell and Kim and others. It's like all of a sudden this, this sound out of Seattle starts coming in and taking over. Like there were some bands, I think like Metallica that cut through, but I mean, it was, could you talk about the impact of what that had on that group of bands at that time? Yeah, I think that, I mean, obviously that is where sort of the story ends, or at least that part of the story mm-hmm. ends for, for these bands. Um, but what we wanted, what we knew we wanted to show is like, of course, the Seattle thing happens and grunge and that, and that plays a role in all this, but there's no way that that is the, the whole story. Um, and that sort of played out as true when we, when we really went into this. And a lot of the guys in the bands that are in our book talk about the fact like Fred Curry from Cinderella is like, well, listen, another factor is like, you look at what we were doing in 90, 91, like a lot of us were not doing our best work. Um, and that's kind of true. Like you look at a lot of the bands that were big a few years earlier, like their best albums are not in 1991 before Nirvana comes on the scene. Like they're still sort of changing and they're still in a weird sort of rock in a hard place moment because people that were into them in 85, 86 don't, necessarily want to keep hearing the same thing but then some of the a lot of them do want to hear the same thing and so like you can't you can't really please everyone continually and like people are aging out of it and so on and so forth but when the grunge bands come in at the beginning there's not this divide the way it happens later and and like you mentioned yeah we have jerry cantrell in there and kim thiel like they're not trying to kill these bands and they say as much like that's not their intention. They don't really, why would they even care really what these other bands are doing? Like they just want to do their own thing. And Jerry Cantrell in particular, like has a real connection to this music. He talks about loving Mm. George Lynch and loving Warren Demartini. And he played in a band with one of the guys from pretty boy Floyd and Alice in Chains, Mm -hmm. obviously were pretty glammy in their early days. Um, You know, Tom, I think saw them play with extreme around that time. So the truth, <laughs> so, you know, it's like, it's all just hard rock. Like I remember listening to this stuff at the time and I liked all of it. Um, but what happens is there, there's this divide does start to happen. A lot of it in the press and a lot of it, you know, and Tom always points this out too. And I agree with it that the one guy who really did have a problem with a lot of this music was Kurt Cobain. Um, he mm. didn't, he, he wasn't down with the homophobia of a lot of it and the misogyny 
And he was more vocal about it. And for better or worse, he didn't want to be the figurehead necessarily of this scene, but he was. And when he said something like it sort of stuck and there was definitely something that stuck to a lot of these guys um, that they couldn't shake off um, because of a guy like him. And that helped to sort of, you know, push everything to the sides. I mean, it's really a time and, and it's funny, the very first moments that we were thinking about doing this book, we were going to, we, we toyed with the idea of just chronicling and trying to figure out the business aspect, like the whole thing about the end, like what happened? Was it a conspiracy? <laughs> yeah. Um, like what, and you know, JJ French from Twisted Sister has a great quote in the book where he's like, you know, since when is fucking people over to make money a conspiracy? But um, <laughs> I, should, I should have asked you if I could curse on this podcast, but um, there you go. Um, yeah, the, the interesting thing is that, yeah, these people, everyone involved with this music is marginalized. You know, it takes a couple of years, but, you know, the producers, the one guy who, who, who's in our book, Howard Benson, like manages to like sort of cycle out and after, like do mad chemical romance and stuff. But like the guys like Bo Hill, Michael Wagner, Tom Warman, people who have sold tens of millions of records, they never get another call. You know, A&R guys who had signed these bands, bands don't want to sign with them. Now, like, I don't want to sign with Cinderella's A&R guy. You know, um, it's a complete and total stigma to have been involved wow. in the scene. You know, there's the, the thing in our book where Brian Forsyth of Kicks, you know, and Kicks are like one of my favorite bands still today one of the best live bands a band who had had middling success and then a huge power ballad which is actually how they ended up having a platinum record but he's going to audition for the wallflowers in 1993 wow. um I, I, like a gig for which he's totally equipped because he's like a really good rootsy player and you know even though he he has a platinum record and a number nine single like under his belt he doesn't say that he was ever in kicks mm. like they, like that would have been a deal breaker immediately you know um, it was this drastic cancellation. Like it's, it, I don't know if it's ever happened, maybe with disco, but like it was, um, you know, 95, 96, 97, like we were working at guitar magazines, Rich and I at the time, and these guys who had been on the cover for a decade, it's as if they had never existed. Like when I started in 94 at guitar world, it was Kim Thale on the cover. It was, you know, maybe green day, Pearl Jam and stuff like that. You weren't calling Red Beach from Winger to you know to to be on the cover. And in fact, you weren't even putting him in the magazine because you didn't want to remind people that that's what you had been doing four years before. Yeah. So it was it was interesting, brutal, interesting. I got one last question, or I got one, and Greg Greg has one. Um, Near the end of your book, you, there's a, a talk about the the Moscow Music Peace Festival, and I don't know if you guys have come across the podcast. It came out I don't know, I think a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. Wind of Change. You know where I'm going with this. Okay, so um, it wasn't in your book, but was there talk at all as you're researching the book that that Scorpion song was? written by the CIA, or if it wasn't, what are your thoughts on, on that song? Because that was one fascinating podcast. Yeah. Uh, but what, are you, what are your thoughts on, on, on all of that? Uh, well, I'd have to start by admitting I did not actually listen to the podcast, but I do, I am aware of it. Um, you know, I, we never came across anything like that. My, my understanding in the podcast is that they never came to the conclusion that it was written but I, by the yeah, CIA, I but I, I could be wrong about that. But about the song itself, um, you know, it's funny. I actually had done a few years before we were doing the book. I did a whole like oral history of Wind of Change for Rolling Stone. Wow. Um, and because the guys who did the podcast actually contacted me, like they wanted to use some of the audio from it. I couldn't find it. But in doing that, like it went, we went into this whole thing. I went to with Klaus and Rudolph and like talking about that song and how like they wound up meeting with Gorbachev and all that. Like it really got pretty crazy for them with that song. But, um, you know, as far as how it related to our book, like, yeah, we go into all of the, the you know, it was another 
moment where we were like, okay, we have to, we have to cover Moscow because it's such a big part of the story of this music and happens like right sort of the, you know, when the stuff is really at the top in 89, but it has been talked about before, you know, and there's the wind of change thing. Um, and there's been all these other articles written about Moscow. And it's like, how do we approach it in a way that tells it a little differently? Mm. Um, which I think that we were able to do by talking a little bit more about, you know, what it was like when these guys went to the hotel and just like, like all this stuff that, in a way, it's like some of the smaller moments, in addition to like the stage stuff and of course the plane ride, which was is a great scene in the book too, because we just have so many of these guys talking about the craziness of that. But it's like these smaller moments about like, I think it's Jeff Labar from Cinderella, like dropping his pants in Red Square and like, you know, one of the Skid Row guys, like climbing up to the roof of the hotel and like, like all this sort of wildness about just unleashing these 20 something dudes you know in in the ussr at that time and like and and just the fact that this music was so popular they could actually get there and do something like this so i think um you know hopefully it 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 gave some insight in a way that people hadn't seen before i know that it did for me tom any thoughts i mean i actually think also that we were done with the book I think we had actually handed it in when the podcast um, came out. So I think that we, um, I, I kind of, when it came out, I was like, Oh shit. And I'm glad that they're, that I I am glad that their conclusion is non-conclusive. So to speak, (laughs) because it would have sucked to be like, Oh shit. Now the whole world knows that it was a CIA thing and we don't, but um, (laughs) I think, yeah, you know, with it, with the Moscow thing and with a lot of the um, stories in our book, because it's people telling them what's interesting a lot of times, the specificities of it, you know, like, like, and then there was like, we like, oh, we brought all our food and we brought a chef and we brought all our toilet paper to Moscow, you know. Um, Larry Mazur, when he sees, it's also interesting that they discuss it, like really the Russian kids or the, the Soviet kids, really all, the only thing they cared about was Ozzy and the Scorpions. Yeah. You know, they had really never heard of Bon Jovi or Skid Row or, or, or Motley Crue. They wanted Ozzy and like to a certain extent, um, the Scorpions. I don't feel that the Scorpions that, that that song is beyond the purview of what they would come up with. Okay. You know what I mean? So I don't know if they needed uh I don't know if they needed outside <laughs> help. All right. <laughs> yeah. But again, like I don't know, man. I I you know, adds totally to, possible. Adds to the legend. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, so I'm going to switch up. I normally ask about music you listen to, but I'm going to ask a different question. I'm going to first start it because I played with a number of the boys over the years. I, the first question is, is Anvil the greatest band never heard in the U.S.? That's the first question. The second question is, what documentary do people need to see that they might not know about, about music? Let's see. Um, the, I don't, I'm not super that crazy, crazy, crazy into Anvil. So I may not say that they are. <laughs> you're, you're having trouble on my first question. <laughs> no, no. My favorite, my favorite Canadian band that no one ever heard of was a band called the, the 39 Steps, who were a yeah, punk yeah. rock band who had one song called, uh, I think, something into the crowd that was in a one of one. And I thought that they were the band that should have been like the huge punk rock band. Um, the documentary, and I'm going to actually make the Cardinal uh, sin right now of looking it up because I, I don't want to get the, the title wrong, but I recently saw a documentary about, uh, and it has nothing to do with metal. Um, the rock and the there was a rock against racism documentary that oh, came out like oh. three years ago that I just watched. That's about like the the actual, you know, people in England who put out the fanzine and put out um, the you know and put this whole thing together in England and then ended up doing this concert 
in England that they got the the, the clash yeah. the headline. And yeah, I saw that. That was phenomenal. Phenomenal. I'm sorry, I got, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean that like yeah. this documentary, you're just like, because this it's again, this when you think about the world of 1980 and how anyone got anything organized. You know what I mean? Like, how did you do this before? the face mm. bot and the Instagram, like, mm -hmm. but they're doing fanzines and they're opening different chapters all over the country and everybody's got their own fanzine and their own gigs. And they're telling people how to stop skinheads from, you know, and then finally like, you know, trying to get the clash and like, there's this whole thing, like, are we going to get the clash? Are we going to get the clash? Yeah. You know, um, again, because and then, the, and then the March and then they down to the park and yeah. then the band hits the stage and just even the last few minutes of that, with a live show is just, again, yeah. goosebumps. Yeah, I, I actually just got goosebumps right now too. Cause like, again, anything where, where you just see the clash destroy in that era, um, you know, Rude Boy is a semi-documentary, but like all of those things that capture the clash at that time are, you know, if if not circumscribed to, to documentaries, watch anything, any movie with the clash playing around. <laughs> And and you will get goosebumps. But yeah, that that documentary is really excellent and very well done. Yeah. Um, oh I'm, oh oh! So hold on, sorry. The Canadian band that should have been huge is the Killer Dwarves, who I love. <laughs> the dwarves. No, the Killer Dwarves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Killer, Killer Dwarves. Dwarves. We yeah, yeah. Dwarves. Oh, dwarves. Dwarves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, yeah. I love their records. The, the you know we stand like I love those Killer Dwarves records. Um, <laughs> like dirty weapons and stuff like that was the band that I never understood. I'm like, why aren't they huge? Why aren't they opening for poison? Like I would have loved to have seen them. like they were never. Everything revolves around right. poison. Yeah. They yeah. asked the same question. Yeah. yeah. It really yeah. does for me. Like the last <laughs> words I will utter as I shuffle off this mortal. DC DeVille. <laughs> Rich, your turn. <laughs> well, um, to answer the first part of your question, I, I agree with Tom. Like Anvil, yeah, just never did it for me. You know, I watched, I did watch that documentary when it came out. It was great. Um, yeah, they were just one of those bands here. It's like you sort of knew of them. You certainly knew the name, kind of knew, like you'd heard a song or two, but like yeah. didn't know the whole story. The, 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 the thing was great. I'm, I'm happy for them that they, it's like 10 years later and they actually like, like they use that documentary successfully to like continue on um, and have a, a full career after that. So, so good for them. <laughs> I don't know if I've listened to them since watching that, but, but I don't, I don't have any issue with people. Like, it was, it was totally set up to. for the question about documentaries. <laughs> um, you know, documentaries, like, I mean, I watched a lot of stuff when we were doing this book, like I probably watched, the decline of Western civilization one like five or six times, unfortunately, um, you know, lately, like I definitely, I watched that Go-Go's one that came out, the Beastie Boys one that came out, which are both great. I mean, anything, especially it's sort of New York centric to that eighties mm -hmm. period. It's just cool to see, you know, the, the footage from that, that time. And in addition to it being a great story and the Beastie Boys just being awesome in every way. Yeah. Um, so that's t that's definitely one that I would recommend people checking out. It's it's I don't think it's under the radar, but nowadays it's like everything is sort of under the radar unless it's your thing. So so that's the one I would point to. Yeah. Awesome, nice. I, I want to. I just want. Sorry, I know I have. A, yeah, I do have a hard out, but that's it. <laughs> but one other music documentary that I think is amazing, and um, it's because I'm a huge Guided by Voices fan, is Watch Me Jumpstart. The Guided by Voices documentary from like 96 is another one of those like, I own it, I watch it like for pleasure and stuff like that. I'll shut up now. No, and, and I do want to also mention too that it's White Riot was the name of that Rock Against okay. Racism. Yeah, so, so. Okay, thank you. Yeah. The book is nothing but a good time. Uh, Tom, Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. We, yeah. uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. For Thank you so us. much for having us. Yeah, this was great. Awesome. Take Thank care, guys. So much. Talk to you later. Cheers. Bye. Stay safe. <laughs>